I'm Linus. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer, here on Kids Talk Church History. In 1095, Pope Urban II launched a call to all Christian able-bodied men to meet an urgent need. By that time, Muslim troops had taken over much of the Near East and North Africa, coming dangerously close to destroying the Byzantine Empire, and the Byzantine Emperor Alexis I sent a desperate call for help. Urban appealed to the Christians' love for Jerusalem, the biblical holy city, which was now in the hands of Muslims. He encouraged those who had military skills to protect the Christians who had lost their lands. Thousands of Christians responded with zeal, starting their march in 1096. They called themselves pilgrims and saw their expeditions as a way to do penance for their sins. Since many of them attached cloth crosses on their clothes, they later became known as crusaders, and their expeditions became known as the Crusades. Hi, I'm Emma. I'm 16, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm Christian. I'm 14, and I live in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Mina. I'm 14, and I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I'm Grace. I'm 11, and I also live in Raleigh. So from what I understand, the Crusades are one of those very complicated subjects that people try to make to sound simple. So there were six of them, maybe nine, over a long period of time involving a lot of different people who had different motives and different ideas. So it's really difficult to talk about them as a single story. I mean, they had some things in common, but also many, many things that were different from one situation to another. So my question is, why are we even going to try to talk about them? So they are very important, both in church history for, you know, it was a religious war, but also for the rest of history. Um, They've been interpreted and reinterpreted in so many different ways. For example, Napoleon justified his attack on Egypt during the Napoleonic Wars through references to the Crusades. So it has like this really long effect through history. Also, if you look at old children's books about the Crusades, they talk about great heroes like Richard the Lionhearted. But in newer children's books, the hero is the Saladin, Richard's enemy. Wasn't Richard the Lionhearted also in a Disney movie? Yes, he was in the cartoon Robin Hood, my second favorite Disney movie of all time. He was the good king who was away at war. So who's the hero and who's the villain? So I'm sure that there were good and bad people on all sides. And when we look at real history, not fiction, a person can have good and bad traits and make good and bad decisions. And I think in this case, there are at least three accounts of the story, right? The Christians from Western Europe, the Muslims, and the Byzantines. Yes, I read about the Byzantine princess who wrote her impressions of the Crusaders. Yeah, her name was Anna Komnena. She was actually the daughter of Emperor Alexios and one of the few medieval women writers who went down in history. She wrote the story of her father's reign, the Alexiad, and included her impressions of the crusaders she met when she was only 13. That's younger than me. I meant to ask you, you said that they were called crusaders because they had crosses sewn to the clothes. So is that from the Latin crux? Yeah, crux in Latin means cross. But actually, I read that they didn't call themselves crusaders. That's a name that other people gave them. They just called themselves pilgrims. Pilgrims as in pilgrimage on a holy journey? Yes, I think that's what they meant. 
But today, I think we use the word crusade for a lot of things. For example, if a person is trying to get to people, people to be as passionate as he is about something, we say he's starting a crusade. But when people refer to the historical crusades, they almost always do it in a negative way. If they don't like Christianity, they say, look at their crusades. That's how bad Christians have been. And that's why it's really important to talk about this. We have the perfect expert to help us figure out all these things. Alfred Andrea, professor emeritus at the University of Vermont and author of many books on the Middle Ages and especially on the Crusades. Sadly, he couldn't join us in person, but he wrote down the answers to our questions. So this time we are going to be doing something that we've never done before. We'll have one of our other hosts, Lucas, read Professor Andrea's questions. For those who don't remember him, Lucas is 15 and lives in San Diego, California. We thought he had the perfect voice for the task. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Um, in any case, dear listeners, just forget you are hearing Lucas. These are Professor Andrea's answers. So here comes the first question. Can you give us a little context to our listeners? We've been talking about the Crusades and some things we know about them, but when did they start and end and how many were they? Well, that sounds like a double trick question to stump the old man, right? Well, maybe I can squirm out of this. First, crusade historians disagree as to when the crusades began and when they ended. Well, you say many textbooks are clear. The first crusade was called in November 1095, got underway in waves in 1096, and captured Jerusalem in 1099. And the last significant crusader-established site in Syria-Palestine fell in 1291. So clearly, 1095 to 1291. But not so fast, my friend. Many historians, I included, see a number of early crusades waged before 1095, especially from the mid-11th century onward. Also, crusade historians do not agree when the crusades ended or how many there were. In fact, most of them think that restricting our study of crusading to just two centuries is plain wrong and is based on a misunderstanding of the ways in which crusading evolved. Crusades were fought not only against Muslims in the Middle East, but also in Spain, North Africa, and the Indian Ocean, also against people the church considered heretical. So broadly speaking, we can say crusading was promoted by the Roman church from the 11th to at least the end of the 16th century. And how many were there? Thousands, maybe tens of thousands, large and small. We only began numbering crusades in the 16th century. And then that was only so far as a few crusades to the Middle East were concerned. And it was not until the early 20th century that historians settled on assigning fixed numbers to the first five really big ones. The first starting in 1096 and the fifth ending in 1221. But after that, they disagree as to the numbering. Medieval Europeans did not assign numbers to them. Crusaders did not say, Hey guys, sorry I missed the third crusade, but I plan on joining the fourth. In fact, there were numerous crusades, small, medium size, and big, launched between the first and fifth crusades that never received a number. So where does this leave us? As with most issues in history, there are no clear-cut, black-and-white, true-or-false ways of understanding the origin, the end, and the number of crusades. In essence, it comes down to how one defines a crusade, and their historians also disagree, but that's another can of worms. Thank you, Professor Andrea. We'll post on our website the full range of dates that you provided. Now, for the second question, we need a little context for the Muslim invasion of North Africa and the Middle East. The Muslim religion, Islam, started at the beginning of the 7th century when Muhammad reported a vision he said he had from God, and someone wrote it down the Quran, right? Right. Muhammad had his vision around 610 and began preaching in Mecca the message of the oneness of Allah or the God, and his call to what he considered true religion and proper conduct. 
The migration of Muhammad and most of his followers to Medina in 622 marks the beginning of the Muslim era and is year one in the Muslim calendar. It was there that Muhammad turned from being simply a prophet to being also a statesman and a warrior, and Islam became a community of faith. So at the beginning of the 7th century, most of North Africa was Christian, right? I remember we talked about some important Christian leaders from North Africa, like Augustine of Hippo. But 100 years later, the Muslims had taken over most of North Africa and also parts of Turkey and Spain. I guess they were a real threat to the Byzantine Empire. What was their motivation? Was it a religious conquest? Well, by 750, Islam had pushed all the way to the Central Asian border of China and across all of North Africa, had nibbled at Anatolia, today Asian Turkey, took all the coast of Southwest Asia, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, etc., and had conquered almost all of the Iberian Peninsula, today Spain and Portugal. But in most of the lands Muslims had conquered, for at least several centuries, the native Christians, Jews, and others kept their faiths and religious traditions. This was especially true for what Muslims call people of the book, or Jews and Christians, who had their own revelation from God, even if the Muslims thought it was imperfect and partial. So these people of the book were to be tolerated and protected as long as they entered into Dima, uh, spelled D-H-I-M-M-A, or contract, recognizing they were to be subjects. So what had motivated the first Muslims to expand and create this empire through conquest, if not the desire to convert the world? Four things, I think. Number one, the Arab warrior tradition in which raiding in search of easy loot was a cherished tradition. Number two, their discovery that both the Byzantine and Persian empires were fighting one another and were, quote unquote, easy pickings. Number three, the fact that it became easy to go from victory to victory and to just keep going against weaker, less well-motivated opponents. And finally, number four, the belief that God was on their side. They believed they had a superior religion that would serve as a guarantee of success, but they also believed they had a superior warrior tradition. The Crusaders called themselves pilgrims. Did they think they were going on a mission for God? Yeah, they were uh, special pilgrims, pilgrims under arms. And this was an act of penance through which they were washing away the penalty to be paid in this life or the next for sins already forgiven. As pilgrims, they were visiting a sacred spot. Originally, they were going to, quote-unquote, rescue Jerusalem. And also, as pilgrims, they were acting both as committed individuals seeking a closer bond with God and as members of a faith community. This was especially true for the First Crusade, but remember, as with all things throughout history, the Crusade changed over time. So did the Crusaders have a motto or a chant? I heard there was the motto, um, Deus Volt. Yes, for the First Crusade. We know from the sources that at the Council of Clermont, the 27th of November, 1095, Urban II told his audience, let this be your war cry. Deus lol volt, or in old French, er, and uh, in old French, Urban was a Frenchman speaking largely to the French, or in Latin, Deus volt. Sources also report that subsequently the war cry was used in battle. How often is anyone's guess? So actually, in another episode, we saw that some Christian leaders had the same instinct as the Muslims to conquer lands to spread their religion. We learned that about Charlemagne and saw that his counselor, Al-Quin, 
told him it was a terrible idea. And during the Crusades, Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, told a nobleman who wanted to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem that her goal is not the earthly Jerusalem, but heaven. So not every Christian agreed that the Crusades were a good idea, right? Absolutely. They were a few, but a minority of church people and others who throughout the period of the Crusades questioned on a variety of grounds the wisdom or even the legitimacy of crusading. But it was a minority. Even St. Francis of Assisi, whose blessing to all was Pax et Bonum, or Peace and Well-Being, went on the Fifth Crusade. Granted, while in Egypt, he went to the camp of Sultan al-Kamil uh, in an unsuccessful attempt to convert him. But he does not seem, note the word seem, to have questioned the legitimacy of crusading. Later, the Franciscans, or members of the Order of Friars Minor, which was founded by Francis, became overall avid supporters and promoters of crusading, or so it seems. So we heard a little about the Muslims' point of view and the Western Christians' point of view. What about the Byzantines? What can we tell from the writings of Anna Camina? Anna Camina's Alexiad was largely a defense of her father. Emperor Alexius I, who had written the papacy requesting help from the West against the Turks. Uh, she was only 13 when Crusaders arrived at Constantinople in 1096, and her portrait of the Westerners, she called them Celts, as barbarians, was a generally held notion in Byzantium, especially as the Crusades progressed. Yet, she acknowledged the Celts' courage and fighting skills. Uh, from my expert reading of this complex evidence, I conclude that despite misunderstandings and hostilities, until 1204 and the capture and sack of Constantinople by the army and navy of the Fourth Crusade, there was still a sense of Christian familyhood b between Byzantines and Latin Westerners. So wars were always messy and the Crusades didn't seem to be successful. Do you think that they caused the Church of Rome and the Church of Byzantium to separate even more? Absolutely. That was the core argument of my doctrinal dissertation at Cornell University in 1969. The capture and sack of Constantinople in 1204, the result of a series of miscalculations, was the single most significant act that caused an irrevocable schism between the Orthodox Church of Byzantium and the Roman Church. But that rift had been developing and festering since at least the mid-11th century. Of course, after 1204, sincere efforts to repair the schism were made, but they all failed. Why is it important for us to have a balanced view of the Crusades? Well, let me uh, allow me to change balance to honest, thoughtful, and sensitive. Why? Well, I like to think of myself as a well-balanced historian, but that does not mean that I normally find the truth somewhere in the middle. I never want to say or write, well, I understand both positions and neither is right or wrong, or, well, if A did this, then B did that. It's all equal. Life, and certainly history, is never well-balanced, and A rarely equals B. For me, being a well-balanced historian means I immerse myself in the evidence and try to extract from it an understanding that is honest, thoughtful, and sensitive to the times, cultures, and people whom I am studying. I want to understand, now that is the key word, the Crusaders and their opponents equally in context. And context means being sensitive to and aware of time, place, worldview, and all other surrounding circumstances. Saying, for example, Crusaders and Jihadists were the same is, to my mind, wrong. 
they were not the same. Saying that is a way of avoiding the hard work of trying to understand the origins and many varieties of crusade and jihad and those who practice these forms of holy war. Oh, I am uh, doing a bit of rambling on. My son once said, uh, I never asked you to pass the pepper because I'll get a 50 minute lecture on the pepper trade of India. Uh, I'm 11, but a lot of our listeners are younger. If an eight or nine year old asked you what the crusades were, or what would you say? Uh, that's a great question. I would say crusades were holy wars fought in the mistaken notion that they were pleasing to God and also brought the crusader closer to God and salvation. That overlooks an awful lot, and obviously I like complex answers, as uh, all my answers show, but I think it works. By the way, crusade means to carry a cross. Crusaders believe they were walking in the footsteps of Jesus on the way to Calvary. They say the truth is more interesting than fiction. There have been some movies about the Crusades, but most of them are not accurate. What is a very interesting true story from the Crusades that has not been told but would make a great scene in a movie? Well, my uh, nominee is a tale often told by Franciscans and historians, but I have never seen it in a movie. Let me say a bit more about Francis and the Sultan. In 1219, Francis traveled with the army of the Fifth Crusade to Egypt, probably seeking holy martyrdom. Late in summer, during a temporary truce, he and his companion, brother Illuminatus, crossed no man's land to the camp of Sultan al-Kamil, the Kurdish ruler of Egypt and Syria. They were intercepted by a Muslim unit and roughed up, but were also brought to the Sultan's tent. There, Francis vainly tried to convert the Sultan. The tale, as later told, is that he offered to carry the Gospels through fire if a Muslim imam did the same with the Quran. Whoever emerged unburnt would be a witness to the truth. The sultan refused to allow Francis to undergo that proposed trial by fire, offered him and Brother Illuminatus gifts, which they refused, and sent them back safely to the crusader camp with an escort. Al-Kamil had perceived that Francis was a holy man and treated him accordingly. The sultan remained firm in his faith, although a later Franciscan tradition maintained that Francis had secretly converted him. By the way, when the Fifth Crusade collapsed in disaster and its many soldiers and camp followers were captured, Al-Kamil treated them with great humanness. So before you go, we have a question from our listeners and then a couple of questions we ask all our guests. So first from our listeners, we received this note. We are, quote, we are Nehemiah, age 11, Priscilla, age 9, Hosea, age 6, and Ezekiel, age 2. We listened to your podcast during lunchtime. Was St. George a real person or only a legend? If he was real, was St. George a Christian and when did he live? Unquote. I don't know if this is your specific field of studies, but I've read that St. George was very popular during the Crusades and that Richard the, Richard the Lionheart placed himself under his protection. So maybe you can answer the question. Well, it's hard to separate historical fact from fiction, even in modern times. So imagine how difficult it is to separate fact from myth in materials relating to the early 4th century. Supposedly, he was a soldier and martyr, but I think he's largely a legend. In time, he became one of the most popular saints in Eastern Christian circles and later moved west. He has served as the patron saint of Ethiopia, Ukraine, and Georgia in the east, and of England and Aragon in the west. The legend of the dragon, of course, is a metaphor for his fighting the devil. Okay, so now for the final two questions we ask all of our guests. First, how did you become interested in church history? 
Well, through uh, eight years of training by Jesuit educators at uh, Boston College High School and Boston College, and also choosing to do my doctoral research on the schism between the churches of Constantinople and Rome, it sort of branded me as a person immersed in church history. But my interest in religious history extends far beyond Christianity, and I've done a fair amount of research in and writing on Buddhism, Islam, and Hinduism. And for the second question, if you can meet anyone from medieval history, who would it be? Now oh, that's easy. St. Francis of Assisi. I have lived and taught in Assisi, Italy on several occasions. Professor Andrea, whenever you listen to this, we are so thankful that you decided to spend this time writing down these answers and sharing your knowledge with us. We were so sad that you weren't, weren't able to be with us in person. We have learned so much. And now, dear listeners, remember that you have an opportunity to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's book, Church History, which includes information about this subject and more. You can enter the drawing by emailing your questions and comments to questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org or by visiting our website, Kids Talk Church History, and signing up for update, updates. On the website, you will find past episodes, such as the one on Augustine that we mentioned earlier, special news, recommended readings, and more. And be sure to tell your friends where they can find us. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Christian, Grace, Lucas, and Mina, I'm Emma. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History. 